Thank you for joining me today. I'm joined on our next, what I'll call, version of our podcast. It's our fourth of the year by Daryl Clements, a senior portfolio manager in our Munimon group. Daryl, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me, Mark. And, and this is now your 15th year at Bernstein, all in, all in the Muni world. That's correct? right. That's right. So, 27 so, years all in. 27 years. In. So, you, so you've seen rates go up, you've seen rates go down, and we're going to pick your brain about all of that in the next 15, 20 minutes. Very good. So, so there's been lots of news. We're going to we're going to jump right into it about and articles in the paper about the Fed, mm-hmm. right, in the U.S. and then central bankers abroad, concerns about rising rates. Uh, we had a debate last night, so there's lots of focus on the election, and so there's a lot of uncertainty in the muni market. What's your view, and should investors be really uncertain about the municipal bond market? You know, it's interesting. Um, There is uncertainty, and there is a lot of questions around interest rates. And I like that you you kind of broke that down. Um, You talked um, globally, and you talked the Fed. And I think that that's what investors need to do. So if we're thinking about the Fed, right, what is the Fed going to do or not going to do? And quite frankly... The Fed doesn't know what they're going to do. The Fed has inside information, and they've gotten it wrong for the last seven years. So they don't know what they're going to do. But I think we're confident in this, and what all investors need to know, is that the Fed controls the shorter end, short bonds, yields. So, for example, the last time the Fed increased the Fed fund rate was between May of 2004 and June of 2006. Alan Greenspan was the... uh, head of the Fed at the time, he increased the Fed funds rate 425 basis points. Now, that would scare people. That sounds like a lot. That sounds like a lot. But think, but what if I told you that one-year municipal yields, AAA yields, went up a little over 2%, so half. Five-year yields went up about 0.7%. 10-year yields went up about 0.2%. And... 30-year yields actually fell by nearly half a percent. So you're going to have to explain that, because you would think if the Fed's up 4%, all bonds are up 4%. No, no, and that's the key. Not all yields move in like fashion. The Fed controls or has more influence, maybe that's a better way to put it, has more influence over the shorter end of the yield curve. The further you go out, their influence wanes. And that is an intermediate bond or a longer bond is impacted more by GDP growth, expectations of growth, and inflation. So, so and market sentiment, right? And the, market sentiment. The Fed's not yes. dictating the rate there. No, that's exactly right. So, um, the worst thing that an investor would want to do in that environment is necessarily just buy all short bonds because they think yields are rising and they buy all short. That's in this environment, no. What you want to do is always ask the additional question mark. And somebody when when somebody asks you, well, I'm I'm concerned yields are going to rise. The next question should always be, which yields are you concerned about, and over what period of time? Now, if you look at long yields, let's say 10-year bonds, 10-year Treasury yields, today at about a 175 for a Treasury. Mm -hmm. But then you look worldwide. And you look at the 10-year pound, which is about at a 1.1. You look at the German Bund, which is 20 basis points or so. You look around the developed world, and every yield of 10-year is lower than the U.S. Treasury 
by a wide margin, making the U.S. Treasury look like a high-yield alternative. So we're attractive. We are we're attractive, attractive at 1.7. Enormously attractive. So all that supply, all I should say the demand for U.S. paper is so strong and likely keeping a lid are, uh, in terms of how far yields could move. Would that happen in the muni market too, Rick? So, so if you're an investor out there in, in your personal accounts, if you're in a higher tax bracket, you own munis because you're not paying taxes on it. If I'm a foreign investor, I, I've got to pay taxes on the on muni paper, right? They're tax insensitive. They are. They are tax They're insensitive. Tax, but they'll still buy muni paper too because it's attractive to them. And they have. They've they, The holders of uh, foreign holders of municipal debt has doubled in the past year. Um, because just what you're saying, it, whether it's a treasury or a muni, munis are safe. Munis do not default. They're less volatile than treasuries, quite frankly. So um, there is an attractiveness there. So, so you, you, you hit on a keyword there, default. Mm -hmm. What are, just to put some historical context around it, what are typical default rates in the muni market? And maybe contrast that to the corporate bond market. Well, if we went back... If we looked at historical default rates in munis, and I'm going, I'll go back as far as say 1970. Okay. Right. And if we looked at the five-year aggregated default rate since 1970, so I'm looking at rolling periods. So just add up defaults that have occurred in a five-year period, yeah. and what does it amount to of the whole municipal market? For a let's say a a a, a the entire bond market is about one tenth. Of one percent, so the muni market. Muni market. So the defaults in munis over five-year rolling periods amounts to one tenth of one percent. That's of the all market. credit qualities. That's, that's all. The Puerto Ricos, the Illinois. That's everybody. Throw it all in. Now I can segregate that and break it down. Let's say a triple B muni. Mm -hmm. Triple B muni is two tenths of one percent. Basically zero. The default rate in muni. Now I would say this. Municipals. I'll argue, have been battle-tested. And the battle was the financial crisis going through 2008, 2009, into 2010 when we were going through a great recession. Mm -hmm. And municipal default rates did not move away from their long-term average. The only place you did see elevated defaults were in very speculative-grade bonds um, dirt bonds, primarily in Florida. Um, so when 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 building stopped, residential building stopped, the developers walked away and those bonds defaulted. But even it, just even you know non-investment grade munis over that um, um, period of time is less than four percent. So bonds, non-investment grade, high yield bonds, I should say, bond, muni bonds just don't default. So, so let me just push on that thesis, mm -hmm. sure. forward looking. You read the news, you watch the elections, and there's lots of talk about pension liabilities, right? Especially in, in for state pension workers. Yeah. States like Illinois get a lot of press about this. Should that scare muni bond investors off? Should it scare them off? No. But should it make them be more cautious about what issuers they're buying? Meaning, should they be more selective? And the answer is yes, they should be, because the pension um, liabilities are real, and quite frankly, they're they're larger um, than what the headline numbers are. The way that pension liabilities are calculated, so they should be um, um, they should be a little bit more cautious. I'll give you an example. 
I'll give you an example. Okay. One issuer that's in the news all the time is the state of Illinois. Yep. And they are the poster child of how not to manage a pension fund, okay. where they have a funding ratio of about 30, 30, let's call it 35%, meaning they have 35% of the assets needed to meet the 100% the obligations. The, the obligations. Okay. And what they've done in the past is they just haven't paid. They've had taken, quote-unquote, pension holidays. So in order to balance their budget, the easy thing to do is not pay into the pension fund because, quite frankly, that's somebody else's problem down the road. So the current pension current. receiver still gets his check, yes. but we're just not putting aside for right. people who are going to retire 5, that's 10, right. 15 years. But at some point, it's got to catch up, right? It's going to catch up, and you could run out of money. But here's the thing. Will Illinois ever default on their debt? No. They won't. A state has too much power for that to happen. Through the stroke of a pen, they can raise taxes, cut expenses, and Illinois has done that in the past. They just they have, they have political gridlock right now. So I don't think that happens. However, are you being compensated to take on that volatility risk? Because the bond prices are bouncing around, and the market differentiates. So, for example, I can buy a Illinois bond today and pick up nearly 200 basis points or 2% above a AAA-rated bond, a spread above a AAA. And quite frankly, I think I'm being compensated to own that for an issue where that will never default. Contrast that with a city of Chicago that is in very poor shape in terms of their pension funding. Mm -hmm. Does a city or another locality have the same flexibility of a state? No, they okay. do not. We sold our Chicago bonds more than two years ago because we saw the issues coming. So, again, that just gets to differentiation where I don't think we should paint with a very broad brush. We need to re recognize that there are issues to varying degrees. Some issuers are fine. New York State is doing well. Generally speaking, how are state and, and local governments doing? In general, they've improved a lot. They're in better shape today than they have been. Remember what happened during the Great Recession when tax revenues fell off a cliff. Um, and what did municipalities and states do? Well, they raised taxes over time. Um, and, and they cut expenses. And now we're at a point where tax revenues nationwide, both state and local, are higher than they've ever been. And again, part of that's raising taxes. Part of that is the economy has been growing, so it's organic growth. And part of it is they've cut expenses. Okay. And they've paid down debt. Remember, there, there hasn't been a lot of municipal bond issuance over the last five years. And part of that is due to municipalities, excuse me, municipalities getting their balance sheets back into balance. And one way to do that, like American consumers have done over the last number of years, is to pay off or pay down your debt. Municipalities were is that no calling different. bonds? It in well in part it's calling bonds okay. away. Because we hear a lot of clients say, "I had these bonds and they all got called." Yeah. So I'm wondering if that's related. That's in some part way. of it. Okay. No, that is part of it. Part of it is not taking care of your infrastructure. I think everyone, every investor, everyone on this uh, who's listening to this, they're driving around on their roads, their bridges, and they're in many ways um, um, horrific. Um, I'm a New Yorker. I drive around. It's like it's I'm driving around potholes all day, and municipalities have done that. And and at some point though, they will have to issue because at some point, you will have to take care of crumbling infrastructure. Gotcha. So earlier in the discussion, you talked about 
short bonds and then long bonds and changes in interest rates. If we move past the credit component of bonds, right, there's two components, the credit and then the interest rate sensitivity. If we think about the interest rate sensitivity for a moment, we typically run intermediate portfolios. That's right. What does that mean in terms of how long, how short, the types of maturities? What's that look like for us today? Well, intermediate is a range, right? So if you're looking at the market in general, intermediate will tend to be, let's say, from four to six-year duration. And duration being not maturity, but duration being a measure of interest rate sensitivity. Okay. It's a... it's. Um, it's not maturity. It's a function of mature. It's maturity. It's a calculated number in part based off its maturity. So an intermediate duration bond portfolio in the market would be considered four to six years. Okay. What we're where we are is more on the shorter end of that range in that four year duration range. And what's the trade off there as opposed to being in short bonds, long bonds, and different volatility? Well, over time, a longer duration portfolio whether it's a five or six year versus a four year, over time, you would expect that type of portfolio to outperform. So you take on duration. a little more duration, you typically outperform over longer periods of time. That's right. Okay. But, you but, are, but you are taking on more interest rate sensitivity and, and volatility. So And if rates are rising, I'm guessing that's not great. That's not great. Okay. No, no. In the and short term, at least. In the short term. So let's think about that for a second. Let me put some numbers around that. So if I tell you that you can get 80 to 85% of the return of a shorter intermediate versus a longer intermediate, 80 85% of the return with half of the volatility, would that, would that be attractive? And, and, and where are you taking, maybe you're taking your volatility and equities and all as you are, as you are, you know, advising your clients. And to give you an example, the biggest, two-year, um, if you looked at a one-year, a one-year down in a longer-duration portfolio, one-year negative return would be about 15%. That sounds like a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. For an intermediate bond where we are, four-year bond, the largest down year has been, a, not us, but the market, looking at an index, uh-huh. would be about 2%. And what's us? Because I think that becomes yeah. a question, right? So, yeah. so, so clients have bonds in their portfolio mm-hmm. to provide stability. Obviously, the equity market is volatile for a whole host of reasons. Now there's at least press concerns about the bond market. And, and, and you've made clear you can't stroke the whole bond market with one broad brush, right? There's yes. munis, there's different. So for our portfolios that are intermediate munis, what's the downside look like on that side of the portfolio? You know, managing bonds here now, as you mentioned, I've been here um, about 15 years now. Um, we've been managing bonds for over 30 years. We've only had two years of a negative return, um, 1994, mm-hmm. and more recently in 2013. And in both of those years, and I can draw parallels of why mm-hmm. that happened, um, in, in both of those years, in 13, um, well, the negative return was no more than 1%. So 1% down. 1% down in a very volatile year, as yep. we remember, 2013, and 1994, down a little more than 1%. And the parallels there, and I think this is important because when, when, when folks are worried about rising rates, those two years, 
1994, the Federal Reserve at the time increased the Fed fund rate by 300 basis points, or 3% in one year. An enormous move in 12 months. And what are we debating right now, whether they'll move 25 basis points? (laughs) That's right. That's exactly right. What happened in 2013? Paper tantrum around Ben Bernanke's comments, causing the 10-year Treasury yield to go from roughly 1.5% to 3%, in about three, three and a half months. Another very sharp move in a brief period of time impacts the portfolio. But the way these portfolios are designed is to withstand that type of choppiness. That's what we, listen, our, our, we manage through three, two, three simple tenets. And that is, number one, preserve capital, provide income, and dampen the volatility of not only the general marketplace, but also to dampen the volatility of other higher yielding octane type assets. And the equities clients have in their portfolio. That's exactly right. So if I'm taking a a risk of down 1%, then that's not down 30 like the equity market, but let's just call it what it is. It's down 1%. Mm -hmm. What what am I expecting in terms of return over, call it a five-year period for for that downside risk? That's not a fair question. Five years? One, three? Nostradamus here? Let's think about that. Um, I think I thought five would make the number sound better. So <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's think of it this way. Here's how I always like to, to look at this. Let's do a base case. Right. And then build off of that. Fine. Right. And I think if we said to ourselves, let's say the base case is, it's going to be, people may laugh at this as they're listening. Um, Nothing happens to interest rates. Okay. Nothing at all happens. What would you expect over the next five years? And what you would do to how you would calculate that, pretty, you know, it's back of the envelope. Let's look at it that way. Okay. You earn your yield yep. on the portfolio. You earn a little bit of roll, rolling down the yield curve, which is in essence profiting through the passage of time. And if you took those on an annualized basis, you're earning about anywhere between two and a quarter to two and a half percent, somewhere in that range. If nothing, I'm not assuming credit spreads narrow. I'm not assuming yields fall. You're not assuming your credit research is worth anything. You're just saying very straight. Let's keep it simple because we can make it much, much more complicated. So let's just keep it that for a second. So now you're in the two and a quarter, two and a half range. So let's say interest rates fall. Because who knows? Again, no one would have expected yields right. to continue to fall, and there's a lot of uncertainty still happen, out there, right? but unlikely it could happen. We've been lower on the 10-year Treasury. Um, we've been down as low as 150 in the last uh, number of months. So it could happen. But if yields fell 20 basis points on a four-year duration bond uh, portfolio, that's 80, so 20.2 times 4, that's 80, on top of the 2.5, let's say, now you're in that 3 and a, you know, 3.3, somewhere in that range. Okay. Um, rates rise slowly, which is, I guess, everyone's base case. Let's look at yeah. that. Let's look at that. Now, what if rates rise slowly? Well, what if I told you that all yields, let's say we say there's a parallel shift in yield, meaning all yields move. Okay. By that initial point that they don't, but let's just say they do to make it easy. They make it easy. Okay. Let's say all treasury yields, a lot of people think in treasury terms. Fine. All treasury yields move 50 basis points in one year. Okay. That's not crazy. That's, well, that, it's, it's more crazy than you think because remember, as we were talking earlier, not all yields move in like fashion. Oh, right. Okay. Fair enough. Right. They don't move that way, but let's assume they all did. Right. Um, you would the portfolio would be up about fifty basis points. So even if rates go up fifty basis points across them, the board, across the board, which is unheard of, 
You're still you're still in the black. You're still in the black. Barely, but you're in the black. But barely, but you are in the black. In order to, how about if I took it a step further and said, um, how would you lose two percent? Yeah, because that's really the because that's really the stress test. That is the us. stress for, test for, for you and your portfolio. That's the that's yes. the, you're not saying stress test me down ten. No, you're saying stress test me down two. That's right. For in the equity market, that's a Tuesday. That's right. <laughs> That's right. That and, is so correct. in your world, what's what's that interest rate move? You would need to see yields in a one-year period increase about one and a half percent across the yield curve. Nobody so so let me let me right? let me put that in perspective. You would need the ten-year Treasury to be at about a three twenty-five in yeah. a year. How in the world is that going to happen? So. It is. I guess the economy takes off, and people make enough money on the equity side. They yes. don't really care about a one percent loss in bonds. That's exactly right. Right. That's right. That's exactly. Right. Which kind of feels like 2013. Yeah, 20... Although bonds were down, equities were up 30, so nobody cared that nobody bonds were down one. That's right. That's that's exactly right. Let me ask one last question because I said we'd run about 20 minutes. I want to stick to that. Sure. We we have a number of people on the phone or clients who have accumulated cash for a number of reasons over sometimes short periods of time or long periods of time. And so as we think about these returns and people who are risk averse because they're holding on to that cash for a reason, right? They don't want to take risk. Does investing in munis in the intermediate term make sense now versus, versus cash? And my, my question back to you would be what is that particular investor client's time horizon? Let's assert, I'm gonna, we'll do two examples, yeah. right? The example of it's long-term money for retirement or for long-term, for long-term, but it's, it's, so it's investment money for the long-term, but they don't want, they're scared of the equity market for a million fair reasons today. So with that, with that, that, that first example, I would say you would always be in an intermediate bond portfolio because cash can and has outperformed an intermediate portfolio in a single year, okay, in a 12-month period, if you time it right. It does happen occasionally, but not very often. It's happened maybe twice in the last 15 years and or three times in the last 15 years. And But again, if you're a long-term investor, you're not trying to time the market. It's impossible. I wish I could time the market, but no one can. So... If you are a longer-term investor and your time horizon is longer than the duration of your bond portfolio, and they say we'll say four yeah. years, you want yields to go up, and over time, in over a two, three, four, five-year period, bonds will clearly outperform cash. There has never been, doesn't mean there can't be, but there has never been a two-year period in which cash has outperformed intermediate bonds. And then at that period in time, my bonds are yielding a heck of a lot more, That's so exactly I feel better right. about my cash. Bond. That's exactly right. Now, if I'm... if I don't know that I'm definitely not going to use this money. I might use it. I might not over the next, call it 12 months. Maybe I'm buying a home. I'm moving. I, I have costs associated with family. Do I try and take the tax-free yield on munis, or do I, in that case, sit in cash for the next 6, 12 months? You should sit in cash. Okay. You should not be in a four-year duration portfolio if you have a date certain an immediate date certain or high probability or high probability that's I, I think that's great um, a high probability of needing this Bank money capital. because you just don't know and you don't want to take that risk and how much are you going to earn in that one year it's not going to be enough 
you, peace of mind. I'd rather know I have the money there for That's the, exactly the family right. or home or whatever it might That's be. That's right. Agreed. Right. Dal, I appreciate your time. We've run about the 20, 25 minutes. For those of you that have questions or follow-up, feel free to reach out to me directly via email or by phone. And I look forward to speaking with all of you and getting together for our next, what I'm calling, podcast later in the year. Thank you. Thank you.